Well, good morning. We have been studying through the book of Isaiah for a number of months, and we'll continue that. And uh, the last few weeks, we've been in a section of Isaiah that's called, uh, or many refer to it as the Apocalypse of Isaiah. It's referred to that, this section of chapters 24 through 27, it's four chapters, the Apocalypse of Isaiah, because uh, predominantly of chapter 24 that begins with these words, Behold, the Lord lays the earth waste, devastates it, distorts its surface, and scatters its inhabitants, and the earth will be completely laid waste and completely despoiled, for the Lord has spoken this word. This is a prophetic scripture. It's futuristic. It's talking about a time of great tribulation that's going to fall upon the earth, a time that has not yet taken place. It's still future. Uh, This is what Isaiah saw. This was his apocalypse that was going to fall upon the earth, a devastation on the earth. But then the next chapter, chapter 25, it's more hopeful and positive. The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow and refined aged wine, and he will swallow up death for all time. The Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces, and he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. Again, this is something that is yet to take place, obviously. I mean, he has not swallowed up death for all time, has he? There's still plenty of tears. There's still many, many hurts and sorrows going on in this world today. But the promise of God that Isaiah saw in this prophetic scripture is that one day he's going to prepare this lavish banquet and he's going to gather his people together and he's going to wipe the tears from our eyes and all death will be swallowed up in his victory. It hasn't happened yet, but it's coming. It's, th- these chapters are prophetic. And so the next chapter, chapter 26, is a call that we then should live a life that trusts him. So chapter 26, trust in the Lord forever. For in God the Lord, <clears throat> we have an everlasting rock. Indeed, while following the way of your judgments, O Lord, we have waited for you eagerly. Your name, even your memory, is the desire of our souls. While we wait, and I think this can also be viewed prophetically, that during the time of this trouble, there's still God's people are to wait upon him. They're to trust him, to long eagerly for him. The apocalypse of Isaiah, these Four chapters, 24, 25, and 26, and now as we look this morning at 27, is a a call to, to focus our attention on what is yet to come and how we are to live in light of that truth. Trust in the Lord, long for Him, and wait patiently. And so we come to chapter 27 this morning. There are three Uh, images that are used, that this chapter kind of hangs on, three metaphors, three uh, images. The first is a sword. The second is a vineyard. The third is a a trumpet that sounds. 
typical Isaiah and his poetic and very um, um, intricate and detailed language. Uh, he gives us a challenge, I think, in this chapter to try to figure it out. The sword imagery is there in verse 1. I passed over it very quickly last week, if you happen to be here. Chapter 27, verse 1 says, In that day the Lord will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, with his fierce and great and mighty sword. Even Leviathan, the twisted serpent, and he will kill the dragon who lives in the sea. And I, I did pass over that quickly. And maybe if you were here last week, you were saying, wait, wait, wait a minute. What, what's this about a twisted serpent and a, and a Leviathan and a, a dragon that God in that day will kill? What in the world is he talking about? It sounds pretty strange, pretty weird for us, but I assure you that the people that Isaiah was writing to, it would not have sounded strange. It would have been very sensical to them because in the ancient cultures of the day, of the cultures that surrounded the, the people of Israel, the Assyrian culture or the Babylonian culture, the Egyptian culture, this image of a, of a sea monster, of, of, uh, of a leviathan, some, some monster from the sea, uh, played in very prominently in their religious uh, mythologies in these cultures. These were uh, immense powers of darkness that would bring chaos upon the earth. And in these different cultural um, religious uh, mythologies, uh, their deities would arise and attempt to conquer this, this sea monster, this chaos-bringing sea monster. And you read these, when I, when I uh, was at uh, a freshman, in fact, at the University of Nebraska and taking a world history course, I can remember reading the ancient Babylonian or ancient Sumerian uh, texts of... Uh, of uh, the Gilgamesh epic and uh, various ancient uh, religious mythologies. And they talked about these things. And um, this was very well known to the people that Isaiah was writing to. And these deities would arise and try to conquer this, these chaotic sea monsters. So here's Isaiah, and he begins this 27th chapter with this idea of Jehovah, Yahweh God, will slay the, the slithering, the twisting serpent. He will kill the sea monster, the Leviathan. Now, it's not that strange in Scripture because if you went to Genesis chapter 1, we won't take the time to float through these passages, but Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? We looked at this uh, recently. And it says that um, there was darkness over the deep. And it says that in verse 2, that the Spirit of the Lord was hovering over the what? The waters. And so you had this um, sense of, of chaos and darkness. There was formlessness and void. There was darkness and the deep and the waters. And as Moses is writing in Genesis chapter 1, it's a polemic, meaning it's a, um, 
it's, a, a, it's a statement written against all the other religions of the world. Because here Jehovah God is taking the deep in the waters, that which was the place of chaos and doom where the sea monster would rise. And all these other cultures of the day had their mythologies. But here Jehovah, the one true God, makes order out of chaos by simply speaking the word. He spoke it, and the chaos came into order. You go to Exodus, the book of Exodus, and the children of Israel uh, are uh, saved and delivered out of the land of the Pharaoh, out of the land of Egypt. And what, how, how are they saved? The waters are parted. God acts and the waters part and they walk on dry land and then the Pharaoh's army is drowned in the waters. It's a polemic. Our God is in the heavens. Jehovah God. He is the strong and mighty one. He is the creator. He is the one and only God. The horse and rider has been thrown into the sea, Moses sings in Exodus chapter 14. Or you can go to uh, the Psalms, Psalm 74. This is an interesting psalm. Psalm 74, yet God is my king from of old, who works deeds of deliverance in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your strength. You broke the heads of the sea monsters in the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him his food for the creatures of the wilderness. The psalmist is singing this song and all the other peoples, all the other uh, uh, cultures of the, of the day would hear this and, 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 and see this and say, there is one true God, there's Jehovah God, and he is the one who breaks the sea monster, who, who slays Leviathan. He is our God, and he's the strong one. And then, I think we talked about this a little bit last week, but then you go to the New Testament, you go to the end of the New Testament, book of Revelation. And so you've got John in his revelation saying, there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war and they were not strong enough and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called devil, the Satan, who deceives the whole world. He's thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. So this imagery is picked up who ultimately is the evil presence of darkness? Who is the sea monster, the Leviathan? What's behind the false gods and the, and the ancient religions of old? The powers of darkness, Satan. And one day there'll be total, complete triumph and victory when Jesus comes back. And so in Revelation 19... And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he might smite the nations. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet, and these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which comes from the mouth of him who sat upon the horse. At the end of the age... Satan will be finally defeated once and for all time. And then the new order of creation 
will come in. This is what Isaiah is talking about. Isaiah 27, verse 1, in that day, the Lord Jehovah will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, with his fierce and great and mighty sword. The Lord Jesus Christ will come. The sword, as it worked out of his mouth, the word and the powerful word of God. Just like in Genesis chapter 1, that brought order out of chaos by the word of God. And so Jesus Christ will return and put an end to all the evil and all the suffering and all the darkness and doom perpetuated by the God of this world, Satan. Isaiah is talking about pro prophetic future. The sword of his powerful word will win the day. God wins. But then he talks about another imagery, the vineyard. In verse 2, in that day, a vineyard of wine, sing of it. Or as we read earlier, it says, in that day, sing about the fruitful vineyard. A song of a fruitful vineyard. Now, if you've been with our study in Isaiah, you might remember way back in chapter 5. In chapter 5, Isaiah wrote of a vineyard, and the vineyard always is a figure of Israel. And in chapter 5 of Isaiah, the vineyard back there was planted by God. It says that he planted the choicest of vines, expecting the most luscious and wonderful fruit to come from that vine. And remember, when the fruit came, the Hebrew little phrase in there is, it was stink fruit. Remember that? It was rotten fruit. It wasn't at all what was expected. He planted the choicest vines, and instead, Israel produced rotten, stink fruit. And so God has to judge and purify his people. That was chapter 5. But now we're reading that in that day, in a day yet to come, sing of it, a vineyard of wine. I, the Lord, am its keeper. I water it every moment, verse 3, so that no one will damage it. I guard it at night and day, and I have no wrath. I'm no longer angry, says God. I have no wrath. Should someone give me briars and thorns in battle, then I step on them. I would turn them, I would burn them completely. Or let him rely on my protection. Let him make peace with me. Let him make peace with me. For in the days to come, Jacob will take root, Israel will blossom and sprout, and they will fill the whole world with fruit. Isaiah is looking in this prophetic scripture ahead in the future. At a time when God will unsheath his sword and, and put an end to all evil, all suffering, the Leviathan will be slain, and in that day, his special people, Israel, will bless the whole world, will blossom, will be fruitful for the whole world. Many years before Isaiah wrote this, God came to Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, it's recorded. And he tells and gives a promise to Abraham 
Abraham, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And through you, the whole world, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. There's a coming day when that scripture is going to be ultimately fulfilled. The day in the future. And yet, just so that we don't forget, I'm not sure that's exactly what God had in mind as he in the, under divine inspiration communicated to Isaiah, but following this promise of the fruitful Israel is a reminder that, but I must first purify you. And so verses 7 through 11 is this really interesting, difficult language, but it basically is saying, I'm going to purify Israel. I'm going to discipline them. And yet, verse 7 it's not like the striking of him who has struck them. It's not like the slaughter of the slain that he has slain. Verse 7 is saying, I'm not going to discipline you like I have other nations. I'm not going to obliterate you. You contended with them by banishing them and driving them away. In 722 B.C., the northern kingdom of Israel was taken away into captivity by the Assyrians. In 586 B.C., the southern remaining uh, Jewish people in the kingdom of Judah were taken away in, into Babylon into captivity. Verse 9, therefore through this, through this, Jacob's iniquity will be forgiven. This disciplining work of God. And this will be the full price of the parting of his sin when he makes all the altar stones like pulverized chalk stones, when the ashram and incense altars will not stand. He's saying, one day Israel will turn their back on all idolatry. The vineyard will blossom one day. The hand of discipline will come against Israel. And one day they will turn their back on all idolatry. And yet for the fortified city is isolated, the homestead forlorn. Verse 10, the calf will graze. There will be, it will be, it'll lie down and feed on its branches. When its limbs are dry, they are broken off. Women come and make fire with them, for they are not a people of discernment. Therefore their maker will not have compassion on them. Their creator will not be gracious to them. In other words, judgment will come. Discipline of God will come. And then the fruitful vineyard will take place. So Isaiah is writing uh, passages of hope. He's talking about something that is yet to come in the future. The sword, as all evil will be destroyed, Satan will be destroyed. The vineyard that will flourish and bless the whole earth as had been promised even to Abraham in ancient scriptures. And then there's the picture of the trumpet. Verse 12, it will come about in that day, so we're still talking about something that is yet to come, in that day that the Lord will start his threshing from the flowing stream of the Euphrates to the wadi or the brook of Egypt, and you will be gathered up one by one, O sons of Israel. There's this prophetic picture of, of God gathering his, his people, his ancient people together. And it says in verse 13, it will come about in that day that the great trumpet will be blown 
And those who were perishing in the land of Assyria or scattered in the land of Egypt beyond, beyond the, the land of Israel, the Jewish people that were scattered abroad, they're going to come together. They're going to come and worship the Lord in the holy mountain at Jerusalem. Again, prophetic scriptures talking about a day when Israel will be gathered again in the land as a fruitful vineyard and worship and honor God in Jerusalem. After being purified. Now, I think this is reflective of what Jesus said back in Matthew 24. He will send forth his angels at a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. A coming promise that God is going to take his people Israel and bring them back and do a work in their heart where they will be worshipers of God like they were meant to be and called out to be. We won't take the time, but Romans chapter 11, verse 25 through 27 is, is a key passage. Let me read it to you. It says, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed about this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, but that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the time of the Gentiles is completed, is come in. And so all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written in the Scriptures, the Deliverer will come from Zion and He will remove on God and us from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. I understand that there is a belief in, among many Christians today that God has finished with Israel. I have no idea how that is concluded. If you take passages of Scripture at their most literal, common sense way, in that passage of Romans chapter 11, maybe we should turn there, in Romans chapter 11, clearly Paul is talking about his ethnic people of Israel, in chapter 11, verse 1, he says, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May never be, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. You can't get any more ethnic than that. That's the culture, that, or that's the context in which he's, he's talking about. He's referring to Israel. Verse 7, what then? What, what Israel is seeking is not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it. The rest were hardened. He, he keeps talking about, about Israel. I say then, verse 11, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? No, may it never be. By their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. This whole context, he's talking about the ethnic people of Israel. And then he concludes, I have, I have a mystery to tell you. A mystery, three parts of which are Number one, it's only a partial hardening through the ages of this ethnic people, Israel. And it's only temporary until there's a coming time, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. 
Israel's hardening is only temporary. And Israel's hardening will come to a complete end one day. Thus all Israel will be saved. This is a powerful statement of God's plan in the future of the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies like Isaiah 27. Um, this is a promise that is certain. The deliverer will come from Zion. Jesus is going to return. He will remove the ungodliness of Jacob. He will save this chosen people. Now again, don't want to take much time in this, but Another ancient prophet spoke of this. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me and literally it, they will look to me whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. And Zechariah in chapter 12, verse 10, is speaking of a time when Messiah returns. In the previous verses, he talks about that Jesus will return and land on the Mount of Olives. It'll be a great earthquake. It'll be split in two. And Jesus will return. And in his return... It says, I'm going to pour out my spirit of grace and supplication on my people. And they will look to me whom they have pierced. This is a fantastic prophecy. Before Roman crucifixion was ever even invented. It talks about the coming king. The one who was pierced through. And they will see him. And God will pour out his spirit and there will be this mass revival, this mass salvation, redemption of the people of Israel when Jesus Christ returns. Seems like a, a fairy tale. It just seems like it. you read these things and Leviathan and the fruitful vineyard and Israel coming back and the trumpet sounding and him gathering the people together. Doesn't it seem almost like ancient mythology? But this is the Word of God. Throughout these chapters, many times, Isaiah ends a statement by saying, the Word of God is spoken. This is spoken by the Word of God. And as sure as we're sitting here, what I've just read is going to happen one day. How do we know that? Because we look to the past. We look to Christ's first coming. We look to the ancient prophecies of Christ's first coming, as we'll see in Isaiah 53 that Messiah would come, that that child would be born, a son would be given, that a mighty counselor, that a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace would be born, Isaiah 7, Isaiah 9, Isaiah 11, 
of that virgin. And so we look back to the first coming. And everything that had been prophesied of Christ's first coming came true, right? We look to the cross to see God's compassion and mercy and grace. We see the love of God as God himself, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, is pierced through for our transgressions. And he hangs on the cross. There's no greater evidence of God's plan and of God's heart and desire to fulfill that plan than seeing Jesus Christ hanging on the cross and three days later rising again. And as sure as we're sitting here this morning, the things that are yet to come are going to take place. As sure as we're sitting here today, God will pull his sword and ultimately and completely put an end to Satan and suffering and sorrow. He will wipe away every tear from the eyes and he will prepare that lavish banquet of joy and his chosen people Israel will come and worship him at the holy mountain of Jerusalem just like Isaiah wrote it. Why? Because God's a redemptive God. It's in the heart of God to do this. He's a redemptive God. He has promised this. He will fulfill it. He will accomplish it. But again, we're living in between the two. His first coming, his second coming, when all these things are going to be fulfilled. So what am I to do today? How am I to live today in light of this? I think it's encouraging, first of all, and we have, to, we have to keep locked and loaded on this, is that God does have a plan to totally obliterate Leviathan, all evil in the world. Satan will be destroyed one day. That's hope. We have to understand that one day the world is going to be blessed. God's people are going to be gathered, and all the world is going to find peace, shalom, and happiness when Jesus Christ, the King, returns. That trumpet will sound one day. In the meantime, trust in the Lord depends solely on Him, the everlasting rock, and live for Him. I'm reminded of Paul's words in Philippians chapter 2 when he wrote, do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ, that day that is yet to come, I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. I mean, it's nice to know that that future prophetic scripture is true, that it's going to happen. But I'm living now. Have you listened to the news recently? It's so easy to listen to stuff that's going on or, or what's happening in our lives personally 
and grumble or complain, even dispute about it. We can get so caught up in the things that are happening now. Oh, we come occasionally to church, hear a sermon about the great events that are about to happen down in the future. And then we leave here and we go back home and, and we can get caught up in the grumbling and the disputing and the turmoil of the hour. Paul is saying, don't do that, but rather prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. And Paul is simply saying, while we're waiting for the Leviathan, for the sword to come out and kill the Leviathan, while we're waiting for the ultimate fruitful vineyard to fill this whole earth, while we're waiting for the trumpet to sound and the dead in Christ to rise, while we're waiting, we are God's people in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. And we are lights. We appear as lights in the world. You know what Paul is saying? He's saying people are watching. People are, people are watching. What, what kind of a life are we presenting to them? What kind of life are we presenting? When Jesus met the woman at the well in John chapter 4, remember what he told her? Whoever drinks of the water that I give him shall never thirst, but the water I shall give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. People are watching. Are we lights in the world in the midst of a dark and perverse generation like as people that have springs of living water bubbling up within us? Or 2 Corinthians 5, therefore if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. People, the world are watching. The, the world's watching. New creatures in Christ. Old things passed away, new transformed lives. Romans chapter 6, verse 4, Paul reminds us, as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Uh, we teach these principles over and over and over again, and so I'm just simply reminding us. If you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you're not the same person you once were because Christ has transformed you. We're different. And we are lights in a crooked and perverse world where Leviathan is still slithering, where the Leviathan and evil, the serpent, still rears its ugly head. The trumpet has not yet sounded and the vineyard is not yet blooming. But as God's people living in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, we can shine forth a light. People want to see. It's like that old story I've shared, I'm sure, before the, the, the preacher who was in his garden building a trellis for his climbing vines, and the little neighbor kid came over, just stood there silently watching him. The preacher didn't say anything. He just thought he'd go away after a while, but the kid never left. And so after the guy finished building his trellis, he stepped back and looked at it and looked at the kid and come to admire the handiwork of, the, of your neighbor, of the, of, the, of the preacher next door. The little kid said, no, well, what are you here for? He said, I, I just wanted to stick around and wait to see what a preacher says when he hits his thumb with a hammer. 
The world watches. The world watches. A young man who led our worship this morning, Ashton Burziel, lost his best friend, one of his best friends, uh, Friday night, early Saturday morning, 27, 28-year-old kid of cancer. Ashton and the best men and the groomsmen that had been at this young man's wedding were all gathered around him. And then he slipped into eternity, leaving a young wife and a three-month-old baby. And one day, God is called to go to pull out his sword, and he's going to put all that to end. Leviathan will be killed, and death will be swallowed up. One day, the trumpet will sound. And the king of kings will come. But until that day comes, folks, we do not have the pleasure to sit in church and go home and do nothing. We have the joy to serve the king and present ourselves as lights in a crooked and perverse generation. That's our call. And we do it as victors. We do it as conquerors. For we can do all things through Christ who has given us the victory. Because when he died on the cross and rose again, he has assured the world of darkness and of light that victory has been secured. No excuses. Let's pray. And so, Father, grant us that grace, the appropriation of, of that power that has been placed within us by your very presence, the moment of salvation, that we can be more than conquerors in Christ and live out in a dark world we can live out the victory and the hope, the joy and the anticipation that one day you will wipe the tears from every eye and you will swallow up death and the vineyard will blossom as the trumpet will sound. Evil and Leviathan will be slayed with the sword and Jesus Christ will reign supreme. Help us to to trust in you, the everlasting rock, and wait eagerly for you until that day comes. In Christ's name I pray, amen.